And let's turn in our Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, if you have a Bible with you. And as we come to Acts chapter 8 this morning, I suppose it's a good week for us to remind ourselves, Desert Springs, uh, or to introduce to you, if you're fairly new, something we say around here from time to time, that as a church, we're to be about spreading God's glory broader and deeper. That's on the front of your bulletin, I believe, spreading God's glory broader and deeper. That's our mission statement. That's what we're about. Notice it starts with God and his glory. His glory is his name. It is his fame. It's his reputation. It's the revelation of himself and the worship that is due to him. And we want that to spread to more and more people. We want others to join us in seeing his glory, in recognizing his glory, in responding rightly to it. And so we want it to not just spread broader, but we also want it to go deeper into hearts and lives. This is why we exist as a church. This is why we sing. This is why we pray. This is why we hear from his word and why we leave each Sunday with a mindset of being on mission for the Lord because it's supposed to spread. It's supposed to go broader. It's supposed to get deeper. And this is, this is what we've been seeing over, over, over and over again in the book of Acts, that the message of Jesus, that is his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins, must spread to others. It's supposed to penetrate. It's supposed to be lived out. If you would, keep your finger in Acts chapter 8 and flip back to the beginning of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Tuck this away if you've not heard it yet. Acts 1.8 is something like the thesis statement for the whole book. It is something like a table of contents even for the whole book. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's the table of contents. It's a geographic table of contents. The witness of Jesus is supposed to spread, starting with Jerusalem, a city, and then Judea, its area around that Jerusalem, the province. And then on to Samaria, the province above it in the north. And then on to the ends of the earth. So far in our study of the book of Acts, uh, with going through chapter 7, everything so far has been in Jerusalem. That's as far as we've gotten in the table of contents, you could say. And the gospel has penetrated deeply there in Jerusalem. It has spread in the city for sure. In fact, thousands of believers are now there in that city and in that church. Maybe 10,000? We're not sure. 20,000? We don't know. Many thousands of Christians have been made by Jesus in that city. And just that alone has caused, has caused quite a stir. The message about Jesus and his death and his resurrection and that he's the Lord has divided that city in some ways. As you hear that message, you're either going to embrace it as good news or reject it as 
as at least foolishness or worse, very harmful and something to oppose. So right alongside the growth of the church in Acts 1 through 7, we've been seeing growing opposition to it. And last week we saw the tension start to reach a boiling point as now believing in Jesus and proclaiming him in that city is a deadly thing. It it can be deadly. Acts 7 showed us the trial, the defense, and the violent mob-style execution of a godly man named Stephen. But the heat is about to be turned up even more on this Jerusalem church as we turn the page to Acts chapter 8. Once again, it seems like the mission could be in jeopardy. Once again, if we didn't know the rest of the story, we might wonder if this movement could get stomped out or simply fizzle out. But what we'll see is that God instead uses the intensified persecution of his church as the means for a new chapter in his plan for the gospel to spread broader and deeper. Again, don't forget, up through Acts chapter 7, It's all taking place in Jerusalem, and that's only the first section in the table of contents for the book of Acts. It's supposed to spread beyond that city. It's supposed to get to Judea and Samaria, and praise God it's gotten past those things by now. It's gotten to, we could say, the ends of the earth. Here we are in Albuquerque today, 2,000 years later almost, confessing this gospel, singing this gospel sending people out to proclaim this gospel, proclaiming this gospel among our friends and our family and co-workers. We know the mission is not done. We know that, yes, the gospel has reached many corners of the world, but not all, not all nooks and crannies. And so we're still spreading God's glory broader and deeper. So we look back to a chapter like Acts 8 with great thankfulness that it got over this hurdle and also great thankfulness we know where it's going after this and with also great motivation that the gospel continue to go forth as Jesus builds his church and builds his church and builds his church until he returns. So Acts chapter eight, we'll read the first 25 verses because they hang together though we're only going to focus on about the first half of those, and then we'll focus on the second half at our Lord's Supper service this coming Wednesday at 6.30. So Acts 8, starting in verse 1, And Saul approved of his, that's Stephen's, execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. 
But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray the Lord, if possible, the, that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now hopefully you can see, even at face value, how these verses hang together. It's the story of how the gospel began to penetrate Samaria. Again, but it's a long and rather thick story. It's complicated, more complicated than I I planned or thought, and so we're going to break this into two messages. Again, as I said, one this morning and then another at our Lord's Supper service this Wednesday. So there are four elements to the story on the whole. We'll look at two of them today. The first being what we could call Saul's attacks. Saul's attacks. Now, we were introduced to Saul last week back in chapter 7. We were told that those who were stoning Stephen laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And it's an eerie picture, I said, when men know they're going to be at this thing of stoning someone for quite a while. This isn't quick execution like an injection or a firing squad. They're going to work up a sweat, and so they take off their coats, and they say to some guy, Watch our coats for us while we throw stone after stone after stone. Well, now in chapter 8, we learn more about this mystery man, the coat watcher, Saul. Saul approved of the execution, chapter 8, verse 1 tells us. So he's a man with some authority. We'll find out later that he's been deputized to head up a systematic prosecution of Christians, even for the eradication of Christians in Christianity. That's his intent, to eradicate Christianity. Look at verse 3 of chapter 8, and just pause 
at a, at a phrase a time to take this in and picture it. Saul was ravaging the church. That means seeking to destroy it, to dismantle it. He was entering houses, not being invited in, not, not knocking politely. He was entering by force. In fact, it's house after house, door to door. He dragged off people, men and women. And he committed them to prison. And not just prison, but this is prison as they await trial, just as it was for Stephen. And then the trial may mean that they die, as it did for Stephen. In fact, the same Saul, later on in the book of Acts, testifies that he was bent on people's death, not just their imprisonment. He says in Acts 22, I persecuted the way, that's the Christian way, to the death. And he says in Acts 26, I not only locked up many of the saints, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. In raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So his, his pursuit of Christians to try to squash this thing even went outside of Jerusalem. It went outside of Jerusalem in part because Christians from Jerusalem fled Jerusalem. Verse 1, they were all, all in the Jerusalem Christian church, they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria because of this persecution. Now don't think this was cowardice. Don't think that this is in a strong contrast to the apostles who earlier were threatened and beaten and threatened again. And they said, no, we will stay. No, we will proclaim. You do what you got to do. We're staying. We're, pro we're proclaiming Jesus. No, see, Luke tells the story here in chapter 8 in such a way that we are not to blame the church for staying in Jerusalem as long as they did. Hence, they were maybe missing out on what Jesus said of, you know, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. It's supposed to spread. No, they, they stayed in Jerusalem. And that wasn't wrong for as long as they stayed. And yet, it wasn't wrong for them to leave. We talked about this before, that it isn't always clear for the Christian when persecution heats up. Should I stay or should I go? It's not even just a matter of my comfort. It's, it's a matter of what is best for the cause of Christ. Not everyone will go, and not everyone did in this case flee Jerusalem. The apostles stayed behind for some reason. Some others were there to properly bury and publicly mourn the death of Stephen, which was a very risky move to identify with this man in such a way. But many if not the vast majority of the Jerusalem church, fled Jerusalem under this persecution, and they fled to Judea and Samaria. Luke wants us to remember Acts 1.8. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem first, then Judea, and then Samaria, before going to the ends of the earth. Verse 4 tells us that they were scattered, and they went about preaching the word. They didn't just scatter. They didn't run and hide. The scattering of the church, the displacement of thousands of Christians 
was good because it disseminated the word, the gospel, to new places. Again, I say there's no indication that they were in sin for staying as long as they did, and there was no indication that they were in sin for fleeing Jerusalem as they did. God is the behind-the-scenes mover and shaker. He's the unseen actor in this play. He is sovereign. He is building his church. These are the ongoing acts of the risen Savior, Jesus. The point of Acts 8 is not that they fled in cowardice, but that persecution was futile since it led to new places of propagation. Wherever they went, they went preaching the word about Jesus. Now, you might think preaching is just what I'm doing right now. I'm preaching to you. I'm a preacher. That's my job. You might think that's what's going on here as they preach the word about Jesus. But, but remember, these aren't apostles. Apostles stayed behind. These are just churchgoers. These are everyday Christians, whatever you'd want to call them. They're not, they're not professional preachers or pastors or full-time missionaries. They went about preaching the word. If that word preach throws you off, you should know then that really it's the Greek word good news, but a verb form of it. So they are good newsing. They are, they are newsing. They are gossiping the gospel, we sometimes might say. We sometimes talk about evangelism. As Christians, or evangelizing. We get that word evangelizing in English from an old Greek word, euangelizo. Euangelizo. So you can kind of hear evangelism in there, right? Uh, it, it's a word we use which doesn't really mean much to anybody but us. Uh, I wish the word we used was good newsing, even though it doesn't make sense. It's good news. We're not just evangelizing, whatever that means. But this is what's meant by preaching. Despite their trial of a forced move, leaving family and home, leaving job and town and familiarity, despite the loss of that giant, sweet community of the church there in Jerusalem, despite, despite the relocation to a new place, maybe they're staying with a relative, maybe not, but it's not where they were choosing to live before. Maybe they would have a temptation to just lay low there for a while and just keep quiet. You know, just, just stay at grandma's house out of town for a little bit and be quiet about this new faith you have, lest trouble find you there. But they didn't. Wherever they went, they went preaching the word. This is a reminder of how God sometimes scattered his, scatters his people for the cause of the gospel, going to new places. Really, it's a reminder of a principle that we find in various ways all throughout Scripture. I thought of wording it this week as this. Christianity does just fine with heat. Christianity does just fine with heat. It's not threatened by it. We have a Savior who was crucified, remember? That's, 
That's the crux of our message, a crucified king. So we're not surprised by severe opposition when we see it, if we really got our head on straight. Nor are we really to be threatened by persecution and opposition if we have our head on straight. We have a risen Savior, a victorious, living king who reigns, who's coming back. Our citizenship is in heaven. He is making all things new, and he will complete that in the end. So what can man do to us? Attempts to shut up Christians or to stamp out Christianity usually have the opposite effects. This is in Philippians 1 so well. Here, you got a guy who's in prison for the gospel, writing to a a church in Philippi who are concerned about his imprisonment. And he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, my imprisonment, has really served to advance the gospel so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial Roman guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. He's saying, my imprisonment gives me a new audience. And besides, it says something to Christians outside of my imprisonment. They they see it and they realize, yeah, this thing is true. This thing's worth living for. This thing's worth dying for. So certainly we can proclaim it even if they're suffering. That letter to the Philippians ends with a wink and a smile when he says, the brothers who are with me greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. They're brothers. So the fierce persecution of the Jerusalem church meant a wider Scope of proclamation of the gospel. That was Jesus' plan all along. It's like stepping on a pregnant spider. You ever done that? Trent Hunter did. He stepped on a wolf spider inside his house and hundreds of baby wolf spiders came out. That's terrifying. Unless you're a wolf spider, then you smile. Right? You, you, you stepped on one of us. We're gone by the hundreds now. It's like blowing on a dandelion. The dried seeds of a dandelion are fun to blow. But don't think that you've eradicated one more dandelion from this world by blowing on a dandelion because those seeds go out into the ground and they spring up dandelions. Tertullian. An early church father writing in the year 197, he said, as often as we Christians are mown down, the more we grow in numbers. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's true, we're seeing it, right? The blood of Stephen is actually the cause for persecution, yes, but also proclamation. It's still true today. Christianity does just fine under heat. 
Do you know the fastest, the countries where Christianity is growing the fastest? China, North Korea, Iran. Nations where Christianity is basically outlawed, at least the spread of it is, where people can be killed for spreading Christianity, where Christians have to meet in secret behind closed doors. The government in Iran these days runs ads on TV about how bad the Christian Bible is. But then that spreads word about the Christian Bible, and Iranians get curious about this dangerous Bible, and they go looking for one. Thanks, Iran. They execute Christian leaders, and then those leaders, former leaders, become Heroes of the faith among the Iranian Christians. In China, Christianity is growing so quickly that that nation will, in 10 years or less, it's on track to become the most Protestant Christian nation in the world. China. But what about us here in America and now here in the 21st century? Well, let me suggest four implications for us now at this stage of our study. One would be the great confidence we can have about Jesus building his church as he said he would. The the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He will build his church. We've been seeing that in Acts. Proclamation happens. The gospel progresses and spreads a seeming problem arises, either within the church or outside it. What's going to happen? Well, there's greater proclamation and greater progress. These cycles just keep happening with increased intensity each time. What great confidence we can have about the success of Jesus building his church and that he'll still do it tomorrow. Secondly, This transforms our perspectives on the conditions that are needed for a church's prosperity and progress. What makes a church prosperous in the best sense of the word? Is it ease? Is it always freedom? Well... I wonder if persecution comes to the Christian church in the United States, what will we think? Will we think some strange thing has happened to us? As Peter writes in his letter, 1 Peter, how do we define the prosperity of a church? How do we gauge opportunities for the gospel? We might gain some perspective if persecution does increase here. Thirdly, Acts 8 should motivate and empower every Christian to witness for Jesus. Again, I say, these who went about proclaiming the gospel weren't apostles, weren't missionaries, weren't professional preachers. They were people like you. And wherever they went, they went about preaching the word. And fourth, this can give us perspective for wherever the Lord has us, wherever he moves us. You can think of each move in your life, each town, each neighborhood, each new school, each new job as an assignment from the Lord. Not just to do it well, not just to love your neighbor, but to proclaim the gospel. However God moves you, wherever he has you, you can trust his sovereign purposes 
That's proof here in Acts 8. God's the secret behind the scenes mover and shaker and all this. And wherever he has you, you can be committed to his mission to spread seeds in the world. Now, secondly, let's consider Samaritan advance. Samaritan advance. Look at verse 4. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Specifically, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he had done. This is the Samaritan advance. It's the advance of the gospel in Samaria. This is not just a geographic advance, though it's that, and that's important, but it is also an ethnic advance of the gospel. And that's a very important point, and one easily missed if we don't know some background to the New Testament and these groups of people, Samaritans and Jews. So here's the background. Samaritans were half Jew, half Gentile, born out of intermarrying that took place during the exile, back about 600 years or more before Jesus came. God had told his people not to intermarry, that it would lead to mixed religion, and these from the northern kingdom intermarried with those of other nations and those of other gods. And so it did exactly what God said it would do. The damage was irreparable in a sense. It divided God's people. There was a rift between Jew and Samaritan. And it just grew over the years. When the Jews came back from captivity and began to rebuild their temple, the Samaritans offered to help rebuild that temple. They were rebuffed. And so they, they got their own mountain, not Jerusalem. We'll go to Mount Gerizim. We'll make that the holy mountain. We'll set up temple there. We'll do sacrifices and have a priesthood there. Well, then 200 B.C. or so, a Jewish leader went and destroyed that temple with his small army. There was bad blood. The Samaritans were considered unclean by pious Jews. It was said, don't let your shadow touch a Samaritan or you'll get what they have. You probably know, if you've heard this bit about the Bible at all, you probably know that Jews didn't go through Samaria even though that was a shorter path. You had Judea in the south, that's where Jews were, and then you had Galilee in the north, that's where Jesus came from, and that's where Jews were as well. And Samaria was sandwiched between them. But Jews heading north and south didn't go through Samaria. They took the much longer, more difficult route of crossing the Jordan River and going around. And if you did get Samaritan dust on your feet, make sure you shake that dust off your feet before you come into Jewish territory. In Luke chapter 9, one of Jesus' own disciples, rather nonchalantly, asks Jesus, do you want us now to call down fire from heaven on these Samaritans? In John 4, we're simply told Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. But we're also told there that Jesus had to go through Samaria. He didn't have to go through Samaria because he was in a hurry. He had to go through Samaria because he had an appointment. 
Uh, he knew there was a woman there who needed the gospel, a woman at the well. He offered her living water. He gave her the hope of himself, Messiah and King. It's that same Jesus who had to go through Samaria, that same Jesus who gave fresh, true, spiritual, living water to that woman who was so spiritually thirsty. That same Jesus told his disciples, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And so Philip goes to Samaria deliberately and dangerously. It was dangerous for a Jew to just show up in Samaria. His message was also controversial. The Samaritans were not waiting for a Davidic king or Messiah like the Jews were. They believed there'd be a, a prophet like Moses someday, but not a Davidic king. And what does Philip do but go into Samaria and preach the Christ, the Messiah? It's dangerous. Imagine an African-American living in the north of our country in the days of slavery and deciding to travel to the south to proclaim the gospel to white slave owners. You get something of what's going on here with Philip preaching in Samaria. His message wasn't ignored. It was, it was embraced in part because it was substantiated with these great miracles. He's casting out demons. He's healing the paralyzed. Now, these are signs, not just miracles. They're not an end in themselves. They point to something. That's the spoken word. They point to the spoken word. They paid attention to what was being said by Philip because of these miracles. In verse 12, they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. You can imagine how he filled that out. The kingdom of God, God's reign on this earth with his king, Jesus, on the throne, the name of Jesus Christ and all that entails, he unpacked that for them. And they believed, they got it, they saw, they were baptized, both men and women. There was much joy in that city. Now, in the midst of all this, there's a parenthesis starting in verse 11. Here in verse 11 and following, we're told a backstory about a certain Samaritan named Simon, Simon the magician. Before Philip came and preached to the Samaritans, they had all been amazed by and following and almost worshiping this guy, Simon. He was a magician, not an illusionist who does tricks, but a magician, a sorcerer, tapping into dark satanic power. He used these powers to impress, to make a name for himself. He, he had a message. It's in verse 9. He said he was somebody great. We're, we're going to see a contrast between Simon and Philip. They each have a, a message and they both have powers. And here's this guy's message. He said he was somebody great. And the people agreed. They were amazed. They paid attention to him. But then Philip comes to town, and Philip has power, even greater power. 
Through Philip, God is tearing demons out of people and causing paralyzed people to walk. And Philip's message is not about himself, but about the Christ, the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. Men and women, young and old, you can imagine, they were amazed, they believed, they received, they were baptized, they became Christians. And get this, even Simon believed and was baptized. He even begins following Stephen. Excuse me. He was amazed, verse 13. The amazing Simon was amazed. No doubt that was his magic name. The amazing Simon. The amazing Simon was amazed. Now, the, the author of Acts, Luke, he's going to come back to Simon down in verse 18. There's more to the Simon story. We already read it. You know kind of where it's going. You'll have to come back on Wednesday at our Lord's Supper service to hear about this mysterious thing that some Samaritans didn't get the Holy Spirit right away. And this Simon character who tries to buy the power to give the Holy Spirit, what's up with him? We'll, we'll get to that on Wednesday. But for now, as of verse 13, Simon believes and is baptized and is and is amazed and, and seems to be a part of something like a citywide conversion to Jesus. At this point in the story, the point is simply this is Samaria. The gospel has gone to Samaria, just like Jesus told his disciples to take it to. The gospel has now gone to Samaria, to these outcasts, to, to those people with a history for rebellion. To, to those people who, who have had a, a, a history of tinkering with God's religion and making up their own. But the Old Testament said, as we sang this morning, let all the peoples praise you. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations, plural, be glad and sing for joy. In the Old Testament, there was this, this promise, this forward-looking day where where God's fame and his glory and his name is known outside of Jerusalem. In the book of Isaiah, God says in Isaiah 49, I will make you, Israel, a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Or in Isaiah 43, God says, I say to the north, give up. My people. I say to the south, give up my people, all you sons and daughters, from the end of the earth, all the nations gather together to the Lord. Well, Acts 1 8, they're witnesses in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, in the Old Testament, the religion was in many ways a come and see religion. Come and see. It was Jerusalem-centered, temple-centered, Jewish-centered, you could say. Non-Jews could come in, but you come and see. You come into this. The New Testament, on the other hand, is a go-and-tell religion, if we can call it that. A go-and-tell religion. There's this impulse not just to, to wait, but to go. Jesus sends his people into all the world to make disciples. One of the neat things you find in the Old Testament prophets where they were looking ahead to this very day that we're in right now and that we're reading about in the book of Acts 
is Ezekiel's temple. Ezekiel has a vision of a temple, a new one to come. It's symbolic, it's, it's visionary, it's, it's symbol-laden. And in this temple, water is flowing out of it to the nations. And it's growing like a, a garden, like a garden of Eden everywhere. The garden of Eden is growing up in all these different places and the nations are enjoying it. You see what's happening? We saw last week, that old temple, it's coming down. It's not needed anymore because Christ has made the perfect and final sacrifice. And now his people, like little temples, they go out like streams coming out of the the temple in Ezekiel's vision. They're going in blessing. And so here we are in Albuquerque in 2017, hearing of that same gospel, knowing some of that same benefit that Ezekiel saw flowing out of a temple and blessing the world. How did it get here to us? Philip went to Samaria. We'll see in Acts chapter 10, Gentiles, full-on Gentiles, not Samaritans, half-breeds, full-on Gentiles in Acts 10 become Christians. In Acts chapter 11, the reverberating effects from Stephen's martyrdom, the scattering of those Jerusalem saints, it's still rippling. In fact, look at it. Acts 11, verse 19. This is important, I think, for our time this morning where we see the persecution we're reading about here. It's being talked about even then in chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered... Because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, almost into the the cusp of Asia Minor, Antioch. Now, Antioch will become a really significant part of the story. The gospel will get to Antioch because people like you went there. They They had to go someplace. Some went to Antioch. The gospel came with them. The gospel was spread among them. A church grew up. Eventually, that church would have its first missionaries. One of two of those missionaries would be a guy named Saul. Yes, Saul, that Saul. The Saul at the beginning of our chapter. Later, not only becomes a Christian, not only becomes the first Antioch, missionary but is used of God in the chapters that follow in such glorious and mighty ways he wrote most of our new testament or at least more than anyone else that once Christian ravaging Saul is the one who's sent out by this church and at the end of the story in Acts is in prison himself for the gospel He's on the other end of it. And there we read at the end of Acts that he is in prison, yes, but proclaiming the gospel freely. He has a new audience. In fact, the final word of the book of Acts in the original language is just this, unhindered. He preached the gospel unhindered. The gospel, though Paul was in prison, was unhindered. As he will later write to Timothy in 2 Timothy, I'm in chains, but the gospel is not chained. Jesus is unhindered. He's building his church. 
and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gospel cannot be stopped, but the gospel must be proclaimed. And this gospel, it does not discriminate. Samaritans come in. The ends of the earth come in. You who have a past, come in. The gospel comes to you today. If it's never come to you before, you've heard it today, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and God himself, the God-man who died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. And that's offered to all and any and everyone who will believe and trust and simply cling to that and call out to God for salvation. That's the gospel. That's the good news this morning. I good news you. <laughs> You've been good news. How's it feel? I hope you find it to be good news because this message divides. It's either true or it's foolish or worse, it is just downright dangerous and stupid. The gospel cannot be stopped. The gospel must be proclaimed. The gospel does not discriminate. And so we must tell people, Christian. We must send people, Christian. We must go ourselves. At least some of us must go to where Christ is not yet known, where they haven't heard. We must sacrifice so that they might be able to go. We must continue to live this out wherever God has us. Wherever the Lord has you right now, your city, your neighborhood, your school, your job, your relationships, you have an assignment with them. He has an assignment for you. I know this thing of representing Jesus with our words to the world is one of the most difficult things for us modern American Christians. We don't like messages on it. Preachers feel hypocritical about preaching on it. We, I think, hear some messages and think, yeah, I know I got to do better someday. And well, What's for lunch? Just ignore it. But, but let me simplify this. Pray for opportunities. Be on the watch for opportunities the Lord might present to you. And be faithful to move towards the gospel in those opportunities as you have the chance to. Pray for opportunities, be watchful for those opportunities, and then move towards the gospel. I didn't even say that you will always get to the gospel, but move towards it, move towards it. And know this, that if persecution comes to this country, yes, we know it won't be pleasant, let's not romanticize it, let's not seek it out, it won't be pleasant, but it won't be a problem for us. It won't be a problem for us. It won't be a problem for the church. It won't be a problem for the gospel or the spread of the gospel in this world. In fact, God may use it for us to have some greater perspective about what's important and what is really needed. If persecution does ever come to this country in greater and different forms than it is right now, it may give American Christians some real, well, what the New Testament calls power, spiritual power, unction, boldness, 
confidence. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will receive power and you'll be my witnesses. Be careful what you pray for. You pray for boldness. The Lord may give it to you wrapped in a package of suffering or persecution. But that's okay. You can pray for boldness. You can pray for effectiveness. You can pray for more opportunities and trust him to build his church and for him to have you just where he has you with an assignment. Let's pray for his help. Oh, Lord Jesus, we want others to taste and see the riches of your grace. And yet we confess we don't want that nearly enough because we're quiet, because we don't want to be embarrassed. We don't want to risk anything. We don't want to be asked a question and not have an answer for it. Give us boldness. Help us, Lord, to trust you. Help us, Lord, to see this as as our assignment, this being our, an essential part of this religion. It is a go-and-tell religion. Christians, wherever they go, they have the gospel, and wherever they go, it seeps out of them. May it be so for this church. May it be so for us. Help us now, Lord Jesus, as we sing of your exaltation and your reign and and the gospel that we want to proclaim. Help us to sing it with joy and with great confidence because you are the king. You do give grace, great grace. And you have given us indeed what is a great commission. We thank you for it and for the promises you have given us to fulfill it. We thank you that it is not in our strength It's not in our power, but yours. In your name we pray, amen.